The Charles Adler Show starts now. So I, I must admit, there's a, a term that I've always been reluctant to use. It just doesn't uh, feel uh, important. It doesn't feel sophisticated. It doesn't even feel real to me. But I'm going to say uncle, uncle, uncle and uh, concede to this term so that we can, we can discuss what's behind the term. The term is culture wars. It really bothers me. Sandy Garasino is a former prosecutor. She's an outstanding columnist for the National Observer, and most important from our perspective, she's an outstanding national conversationalist. Sandy Garasino, welcome back to, to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Charles. I don't know whether you've had the same allergy, uh, you know, the term culture wars, but let's start with basics here. Uh, I never want to make the assumption that everybody knows precisely what we're talking about. And because I often hear people use the term really, really incorrectly, I just get the impression that it might require some specific definition. What is a culture war? Oh, boy. <laughs> Where is Webster's when you need it, right? <clears throat> well, I'm, I mean, I think that I, I think about this and I think about how swiftly and dramatically um, things changed in the culture, acceptance of um, gay marriage, acceptance of, you know, when when the first Black Lives Matter when that first broke out with the um, killing of uh, uh, George Floyd and just the outpouring, the national outpouring. And I think there's like a, been a swing of a backlash against that. A lot of people mad about feeling guilty about things and just, just mad about a, a lot of things. Then of course we had COVID. So of course there, and, and, and there's, the constant climate war and it's almost like it's it's kind of strange how all of these different issues which are not related to each other um kind of tee up and line up along partisan lines and of course people kind of pick the team that they want to be on and and then they just want to fight with the other team so i guess yeah <laughs> you know i was looking i was looking at a poll national mma yeah, I was just yeah, I was just I was looking at a poll just before I joined you, and it was from a credible organization known as Quinnipiac, and the poll asked a you know a relatively simple question: if there's of of the American voters, if if there's a national crisis like a COVID, uh, like a nine eleven, you know, this week we're paying attention to uh, to the date because uh, you know the anniversary of nine eleven this week, and so if there is that kind of national crisis, who do you trust? Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And my radar, my GPS would say that uh, Biden would win that hands down. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, Trump gets more than 50%. Biden gets only 40%. And so we've got a situation now where people are living, we used to call it silos, but essentially people are deciding to choose what's real and what's not. And it just, it feels like a like a Huxley novel, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like the real world to my world. Well, and and I think that disinformation. You know, one of the things that I didn't mention was disinformation and how much that's been proliferating, and really the shattering of what were the traditional norms and sources of information um, that where people used to get get their news. Now they're getting their news from their self-selected sources and which are giving them the news that they want. So you can shop for your own news, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and so one of the things that I think has been 
regrettable in all this. I mean, these same polls, these same uh, Americans would probably say that inflation is out of sight when inflation has now dropped into the normal range. Um, it's not quite where they want it to be, but it's 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 it is vastly improved and in one of the best one of the best inflation rates in the world. Or go to Europe, go to the UK, you'll see inflation off the charts. And Americans believe that their inflation, and so do Canadians probably, uh, if you polled them, uh, think inflation's crazy, think the economy's crazy, but we have uh, very low inflation. We have very uh, we have uh, very low unemployment, and we have rising incomes. But most uh, people polled will say the economy is terrible. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of this is about news shopping. Okay. So uh, some people would say that a lot of this is about a, a narrow, relatively narrow, but important perspective. When I say narrow, but important food and shelter, while the price of food is not uh, getting tossed around by inflation the way it is in Europe and some other countries, uh, the price of housing certainly is. Uh, you know, when you think about the average uh, single home in, in Canada um, being worth more than $800,000, it's on the fast track to nine hundred. just a matter of time before it's on the fast track to a million. If I had said to you, you know, even five years ago, that the average, average price of a house in, in Canada by the year two th 2030 would be a million dollars, I think you would have thought that I was... Uh, you know, smoking something or they're just not uh, not reading the, the proper data. But but there it is. And so I think that is unsettling to people. Uh, for what it's worth, when I was at university, I was taught by my professors, uh, I'm talking about economics professors and sociology professors and, and political science professors, that there was nothing more dangerous for continuity, nothing more dangerous for order in a society than people feeling that inflation is out of control. There are, are few factors that can drive people crazy and frankly drive them to radical choices, political choices, when inflation is scaring the heck out of them. But Charles, you and I, because um, we're not too far apart, um, that was when inflation was at 10 and 11 percent, when unemployment was over 10, was close to 10 percent. Remember when Kim Campbell said that we weren't going to see unemployment below double digits or was it inflation? I can't remember. It was both of them were out of, out of sight, but both. Absolutely. But, um, uh, having, having said that, <clears throat> excuse me for this throat. Um, having said that, uh, while I say that inflation has dropped, the prices haven't dropped. The, the rate at which they are rising has fallen into a, um, into under control, but housing is off the charts. It is absolutely a crisis. And, you know, I was, I was talking about this 12 years ago when Vancouver was starting to, was starting to have this hyperinflation. Vancouver's now, the housing prices are more than twice what they were in 2012 when I was first starting to advocate for getting control of housing prices. And there's, I don't think there's any question. The fact that people are um, unable to, I mean, this, these numbers, the rents are shocking, absolutely shocking. They are unlivable. It is a crisis and it demands immediate attention. I don't think America quite has those numbers except in certain, in certain cities, but you know, in Canada, I think to a large extent, a lot of us have, 
um, the commodification of housing as um, uh, not just as an investment uh, as an investment vehicle rather than just straight up shelter, I think is one of the most damaging things and we've relied on it. It's a huge part of our GDP. Housing and, and rents, real estate are a massive uh, percentage of our GDP. And it's just, it, 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 it's inexcusable and it is a substitute and, um, uh, and, it, and it's a veil for other uh, economic weaknesses that we've, that we've experienced. And boy, oh boy, I think that uh, we, may be seeing, um, we may be seeing some governments paying the piper on this one. Well, um, that's generally what happens. It doesn't matter what uh, country we're talking about. When people are uh, frightened that their wages aren't uh, keeping up with the cost of living, uh, they tend to gravitate to political change. So Matt Gurney, uh, who used to be with the National Post, and he's got the, a substack uh, right now, The Line, along with uh, Jen Gerson, and I'm sure you're very familiar with him. He's also got a, a morning show on Sirius XM. So Matt Gurney, uh, I've known for, for many years. We're, we're fellow travelers. We don't agree on everything, but... So what? Uh, I, t- I take him. I take his his thinking seriously, and he was just reflecting on his own life. Uh, you know, he's got a home in Toronto. It's not in the toniest section of Toronto. It's not. It's not Rosedale. It's not Forest Hill. It's not the uh, the bridal path. Just as a, you know, I would say if it were Vancouver, I say you know it's not it's not British uh, properties, but it's a upper middle class neighborhood. And he said that he bought this house about ten years ago. And he simply could not afford to buy that house right now. Um, and, 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 and a lot of people are, are looking at their mortgage payments, which because of interest rates have, have you know, doubled. You know, they're renewing a mortgage and they're having to pay a monthly nut of, of twice as much as they were doing years ago. Well, very few people have had their wages and salaries increased by 100%. That is the kind of thing I think that, uh, that poisons the well. What, what are your thoughts? Oh, I think so. I think there are... Um, um, there are a lot of people, homeowners, and I mean, there's going to be um, blood on the floor, I think, on in, in economic terms. Um, so many people are really, really struggling. They're going to be facing this. But then the question is, are we going to see a massive housing correction? I think that's, that's the question that that um, uh, I'm interested in. It, 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 as we start to see these interest rates really, really bite, because you know, here in Vancouver, <clears throat> excuse me, here in Vancouver, I mean, this is this is our bread and butter is real estate um, speculation. And uh, there are so many people who are way out there, way out on their, um, and, and they're really, really exposed. So uh, the question will be what happens when they have to sell. And I'm, we're already starting to hear it here in Vancouver of people, you know, distressed sales. And that's going to, that's going to start to claw. But the, the tragedy, of course, is that when you hit a market correction, who does it hurt? It hurts the most recent entrants, the people who have somehow clawed and scraped together enough to have a down payment and enough to get financing. And they get in at the top of the market and they can get wiped out so easily. And so we've kind of I feel like for a long, I mean, I was a beneficiary, right? I bought my first, my former husband and I bought our first house house in, um, in 1988 or something like that. And like, we're, I've been laughing ever since. I mean, at the time, 
uh, we were thought we thought this was this is terrible. This is the top of the market. It's never going to be like this. We're at such risk. And of course, the market just took off from there and went higher, higher, higher. Um, it it's. It's a real fear, but I think there is going to be a real correction. But more than that, as we all know, with all of these the immigrants who have come in um, and the housing crisis that we already have, we have to build housing. We have to get housing and housing has to be more affordable. So, Sandy, let me ask you about that. Um, I mean, there's a reluctance to ever discuss immigration in this country because so many people just slam the brakes on going, well, if you've got an issue with immigration, it must be because you're you're racist. I, I find that, you know, sort of intellectually dishonest. I find that unethical. But nevertheless, that's where so many conversations end up going. So at the risk of, of, of people hurling uh, ridiculous uh, and absurd epithets, if we just simply do not have the housing uh, for a half million uh, new Canadians every year, not to mention that we've got over 800,000 people in this country right now uh, who are foreign students. If we simply don't have the housing uh, for millions of new people, why wouldn't we put the brakes on immigration? Why, why wouldn't we simply deal rationally with this idea that this is racist and say, you know, this, this is not racist, but it certainly is, is anti-Canadian if, if you feel that someone calling you a name is going to make you slam the brakes on the entire economy, because if we if we have uh, if we have a housing bubble that bursts, and prices uh, you know go into Niagara Falls mode, that hurts everybody. I mean, it's not just about affordability; it's about where our asset base is, and most people have most of their retirement eggs on the in the housing basket. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, a calamitous. Uh, lack of uh, confidence in, in, in the country and the economy, you know, the idea that Canada is broken. That's the, that's the kind of thing that fuels it. It's not just about inflation. In this case, we're talking about deflation. Yeah. Well, and, and I was actually just speaking to um, a, an economist yesterday, as a matter of fact, and it, it, who had a, an, uh, an eminent and, and uh, um, economist who's been around for a very long time and she had a really interesting take on this because her take was I was I was asking the question we have such low unemployment we need people to be doing these jobs we need to be bringing in nurses and doctors health professionals we need to be accrediting people we've got this crying need at the same time as as um, we don't we can't house every everybody and we're having this huge crisis and, and her take was quite interesting. I was asking, why do we have this unemployment problem and why has it persisted after COVID? And, and her take was um, that a lot of our employees, it's our demographics, our employees, a lot of our employees aged out. So we're not, we don't necessarily see that when, um, when, when the boomers start to retire. So we're having a, now a tsunami of boomers who are retiring um, at the same time as we don't have enough people to come fill in the gaps. But those boomers, they didn't die. They still have housing. They still need housing. And by the way, sorry, we're hoarding housing. I'll speak for my generation. We are. Um, and, um, uh, and, and we're, so we've got, in a way, we've got kind of a dislocation in the economic supply chain of Canada. So we need new people to be coming in. 
Uh, it's not racist to be concerned about where are these people going to sleep at night? What, how are they going to live? And by the way, how are we going to house the people that we can't house now? That's not racist. It's like a dislocation in the, in the economy. Um, but I think that it, it just to me points to get moving on housing fast and we should be pausing. We should have a rational immigration policy. Yes, we need to be bringing in people to be taking those jobs. We need young people to be generating um, the incomes and, and employment that is going to help to support the health care that all these aging boomers are going to need. Um, so we need those employees, but they can't just, we just can't have them coming in at the same rate every year. We have to solve the housing issue ahead of um, the immigration issue, but these are connected. And I was quite surprised to hear this take that it's really about demographics and, and our aging population. You know, China's going through the same thing and look what's happening to their economy and they're not bringing in immigrants to the extent Canada does. So, we were talking about the culture wars a few moments ago, and it just occurs to me that in uh, Saskatchewan, the Conservative Party there, and they call themselves the uh, the Sask Party, the, the Saskatchewan Party, that doesn't matter why, but that's the Conservative Party, that's the right of center party in, in Saskatchewan. They've been governing for, for quite a while, and the polls say they can you know, govern until the cows come home. And at the moment, uh, their premier is now talking about invoking the notwithstanding clause and this has something to do with the, the pronoun war, the culture war in schools. Is this something that you take seriously? And I ask because clearly the right is raising a lot of ruckus about this and raising a lot of funds. And, uh, of course, th those people who are, are trans are definitely feeling uh, put upon. Uh, but there are a number of, of, of families right now who are convinced that there is a movement in the schools to convert their children uh, from the current orientation to something else. Once again, it sounds crazy. It sounds like science fiction. But for a premier, Scott Moe in this case, to be talking about invoking the notwithstanding clause, something's rotten in Denmark. Well, that, I mean, he's, he's, this is just part of a way of, of, you know, alarmism and just throwing fuel on the fire. There has been no ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada that about any of this, and, and we don't even know um, what kind of rules he's talking about. The, to me, this whole issue, I'm very disturbed by the, I mean, the narrative, and we talked about social media earlier, the narrative that has been going around is, and it's common in the United States, you see it all the time, that people, that progressives, that they're groomers, they're pedophiles, all of this is feeding this kind of perception that is very out there on social media. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a legitimate issue when you're talking about a mental health issue with a child, and is there some you know, what is the communication between the school and the family about the child? There are, I, I feel like there are, there's a legitimate issue on that sometimes, but there's also a lot of children that, you know, are afraid of their families. And are we going to have a rule that just blanket you know, there's no judgment here. There's no room for judgment, and there's no trust in the professionalism of 
of trained people. I mean, my experience in the school system, which is years old now, was that these were really professional, thoughtful, sensitive people. And I think most people feel that way about their teachers. But through disinformation, they've got a perception that these other teachers are weirdos who are going to do something crazy. And I, you know, I would love for um, our political leadership to tone down the rhetoric because they know what they're doing. They know that they're feeding into this, um, to the kind of rumors that are floating around on social media that are that are just the most revolting rumors and have no basis in truth. Um, Scott Moe should not be using or threatening the notwithstanding clause unless he's, he's tried to pass legislation and the courts have blocked it. But we're nowhere near there. He's really just, you know, I think he's just talking out of his hat to try and, and I don't know what, because like you say, he's not in any political risk. Maybe he's trying to um, amp up the volume to help to help Pierre Polyev because everything seems to be tag team that way. But I'm just trying to put myself in the position of a school teacher. So I'm teaching math or I'm teaching English in, you know, grade six. I, 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 I cannot imagine uh, because I have a family and I have friends. I, I cannot imagine justifying to my family and friends that I'm recommending uh, to young people that they have a significant sexual surgery if they're feeling uh, like they're trapped in, 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 a, in another person's body. I can understand why you would have uh, some experts that uh, would, would be counseling him on this, but the, but the idea that a teacher is, you know, sticking their nose in it, as it were, and trying to, uh, you know, sort of uh, be an advocate for, uh, for surgical procedures when we're talking about uh, children. Teachers are marking papers. They're marking exams. They're trying to get their... Yeah, but I mean, I keep I keep hearing I I don't see any evidence of this, but I keep hearing these accusations. I mean, and if you if you push back on it and say where's the evidence, you get called a groomer or a pedophile. Well, so, but the, uh, you know, at that point, it's a conversation I mean, this stopper. Is, this is kind of what the problem with the culture wars is: people <coughs> just making baseless accusations. First of all, um, if uh, minors are not getting surgery, okay. Minors are not getting surgeries except in extremely exceptional cases um, where there's something else that's going on. This nobody is uh, is transitioning. Um, th that's just that's not happening, and all the all the evidence is pointing to that. the The issue, the question that people are talking about is um, uh, uh, about taking hormones to suppress. Uh, to suppress development until a minor is old enough to make their own decisions as an adult. And that's what we accept is that people are old enough to make those, make those decisions when they reach the age of majority, whether that's 18 or 19 in this country. What's interesting to me, having spent uh, a lot of time with, uh, uh, in the athletic world, is that dollars to donuts there are 10 times or 100 times as many parents dosing their kids with growth hormones to get them onto the NH get them into the NHL than there are parents who are with doctor's assistance um, 
uh, and within consultation with medical professionals suppressing their kids' um, uh, sexual development until, until they are adults and can make these decisions for themselves. But there's, I haven't heard a thing. Have you heard any? Has it been on the national news? Has there been a complaint? Has any, have premiers been shouting from the rooftops about parents giving their kids steroids to get them into professional sports? No, no, they, no they haven't. Because the idea of having a child in the NHL or the CFL or the NFL is just too, too appetizing. And if it uh, takes some uh, chemical assistance, then so be it. Everybody does it. Um, what do you make of uh, the idea that, uh, you know, some parents are complaining about uh, sports teams, specifically female sports teams, where uh, the, the females are being bested by those people who might be uh, transitioning. In other words, uh, they are biological. They were born male, and therefore they've got more strength and, and more speed. I'm talking about a sweeping generalization here. Not all, not all males are, are strong and, and speedy, but you've got some situations uh, whether it's uh, soccer or, or any other sport, um, is there is there a way to compromise uh, there? Is there if, if someone were to suggest that uh, you know you get uh, if you're going to be on a male team or female team, it's based on your original biology, not based on your your feelings. Is that is that deeply offensive and and does that uh, take us to a bad place? I don't know the answer to this question. But you know what? Nobody cared about girls' sports until this started to happen. Like, you know, as again, as someone who comes from an athletic background, athletes in our family, uh, Olympians and, and whatnot, nobody gave a rat's ass about women's sports until now. Now all of a sudden we have to, you know, thank God for, for women's soccer and, and, uh, and, and, the, and these other sports. And that's, you know, all that's, that's really great. I, I, again, to me, it's one of these things where people are suddenly finding something to care about. Um, but I don't know the answer because to me, it does seem pretty obvious that someone who has hit the age of 15 as, um, as a biological male and then has some kind of transition, I, it, I'm uncomfortable with it because, you know, my natural inclination is to mind my own business and let people do what they want. Sure. But on sure, but, I, but, but this issue, whether, you know, this, this issue, I, I think, is, is, is driving some of this. Parents who ordinarily aren't ideological are, are, are upset. I'm wondering whether or not we should go all the way. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just wondering whether we should go all the way in sports and simply have mixed teams. Uh, you know, men and women, and uh, they should be on those teams based on their skill set. I mean, you don't have to be an expert to know that many women are far stronger and far more athletic than many men. Uh, you know, we, we in, in in various sports we have, uh, you know, like in boxing, we've got light lightweight and medium weight and featherweight. Uh, might not that be the ultimate uh, solution? Just to have mixed teams, and you're on a team based not on whatever, you know, whatever organs you were born with, but based on your skills. Does that seem like something that's going to happen? I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I'm always being Canadian. I'm always looking for a compromise <laughs> because I just find this argument so absolutely odious uh, because people get labeled and the, and the conversation stops 
and the conversation only continues with the people who are the most and, odious. And, and let's face it, yeah. I mean, uh, like I say, I generally come down on the mind your own business, and and it's you know people do people should do what they you know. Funnily enough, the the left is now is now the pro freedom side, and the and the right is is no, they want government control. Um, so everybody has switched sides on that. Um, but there, you know, there. But I have to admit, I think that probably the average Canadian probably doesn't feel that way about transgendered and 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 um, um, uh, gay and lesbian athletes and well, what's going, what's happening? I I don't know. I, I this is one of those things that I feel like it's in. 10 or 15 years, it's going to have worked its way through the system and we'll have arrived at some solution and everybody will have got used to it or we'll be, or we'll just be at each other's necks forever. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, and just to, to wrap it on, on this, this portion of, of the conversation, uh, there are, it's, it's fair to say there are people who have it in their interests to keep these controversies going and uh, they raise a lot of money on them. And uh, I don't have to tell you that uh, political parties have, have some interest. In this case, parties on the right scaring the hell out of parents and uh, and telling them that uh, we need to have notwithstanding clauses. We need to challenge the courts. We need to challenge God knows who. Otherwise, your, your children are are unsafe at school. Uh, let me uh, let me go after uh, just one more item here, and uh, that would be where you think the economy will be two years from now. And I say two years from now because that's when. Trudeau is most likely uh, to drop the writ and have another election. The deal he's got with Jagmeet Singh, I don't see that falling apart. Uh, if there is an election right now, Jagmeet Singh uh, loses all his uh, all his power, so I don't see him challenging uh, the prime minister. Um, the economy, uh, James Carville used to say, it's the economy, stupid. The economy does matter. We've been talking about the economy in this conversation. Do you see the economy much improved two years from now and therefore creating a, a different kind of political field than what we're looking at right now based on the latest polling. Well, it's it's interesting because as you were saying, as you were sort of closing the door on the last issue, and I was thinking, man, you know, we've come a long way. Remember when it was all vaccines and, uh, um, and, and inflation and those have disappeared. So now we have to have, uh, now we have to be mad about transgendered youth and teachers and, and whatnot. So there's, it's always like there has to be some new issue. Um, the interesting thing about the economy is how much public perception now is governed not by the real data, but by, uh, um, but by perceptions of perceptions about what's going on. And the average person, I think, thinks the economy is not doing as well as it is. But we get back to housing affordability. And I think that this is the uh, Achilles heel of the Trudeau government. This is the one persistent and, and um, uh, pretty intransigent thing, uh, that I think that it's not going to be solved in two years. It's probably going to be worse in two years because anything that, as you know, uh, any projects that might be um, greenlit today, first of all, there's a lot of developers, a lot of builders who are nervous and sitting on the sidelines because they are already overextended and over leveraged and these interest rates are killing them. Um, and uh, and so those those that housing is not going to be built in two years. 
anything that gets so we're not going to see a significant change in that issue and i think this has been this has been the sleeper issue that this is the lion that has roared has just woken up and roared i do not see that changing and it is it is a doozy and this has the has the um, potential to to i think be a wave i and i think this is something that polyev knows um, and he's hammering away at this, but it's not just, you know, that's not just a gimmick. Like, I think the transgender thing is a gimmick. I think housing affordability is real. It's not going to change. It's going to be a vulnerability. It could be the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Liberal government. So, Sandy, I uh, just need to ask you about uh, the issue revolving around not, not uh, affordability, but I need to ask you the question that most people are now discussing. It has nothing to do with affordability, nothing to do with inflation. It's the COVID thing. We're worried that it's back. We're being told that uh, a new uh, vaccine is, is out by Moderna. It'll be coming to Canada very, very soon. Uh, we're also being told by health authorities to, to mask. I've noticed that you on Twitter slash X are talking about uh, masking. Um, do you have a feeling that we're... Uh, we're back into the the nasty business of of a pandemic. I don't think that we'll get to where we were before. I mean, the 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 real panic that we had in 2020, 2021 was can we get a vaccine? We got a vaccine in shockingly fast time, just record time, and we got it um, made, produced, and distributed. I mean, it was it was really remarkable, and we are having. Um, consistent new vaccines are coming on stream. And I think that people who are getting COVID are not suffering as much as they were. So I don't know that absent some new virus, it, it appears that all the variants that have been coming out of COVID have not been having the devastating impact that the first wave or the first couple of waves had. So I'm not so concerned about what COVID will do. I have started to mask largely because I started I I'm starting to read the data and they're saying that if if you had covid you are five times more likely to have some sort of heart um heart related or stroke related uh event than if you than if you just got the vaccine and I have in my own my, in my own case I've experienced it I've, my blood pressure went up um for the first time in my life, just crazy uh, numbers. So I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to see that happen in my family. So I'm masking. I have a 92-year-old mom that I care for a lot. Um, uh, I care about, I love, but I also care, I'm, I'm also caregiving. And so I have to, I have to be very careful for her sake. So I hope that a lot of other people, I hope masking doesn't become the kind of divisive thing that it was before and i hope we're kind of i hope we're going to get past the feeling that this is some sort of political flag if you're wearing a mask because i think people i think i think we should be masking when we're in public places sandy uh, both of us clearly have a tick uh, so we apologize to uh, to listeners and, and viewers about that but no that's uh, we're just in 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 the same boat as it were with millions of other canadians uh, it's called the flu it's called the fall. It's called uh, the days are shorter, uh, the temperatures are cooler, and uh, you know stuff happens. Sandy Garasino of the National Observer, 
Thank you, as always, for the stimulating conversation. Charles, thanks so much for having me on. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.